Worthy is the Lamb of God to receive power, glory, wisdom, and strength. Well, this last week, uh, my family and the Clue family, we were out at the Connect Conference for the Berean Fellowship of Churches. I don't know if you know we're part of that fellowship, but we are. And mostly, it's made up of churches that are in Nebraska, and it's a cool story. And I can't unpack everything uh, that happened in that conference, but one thing I do want to share with you that is true, at one point, the closest church we had to us was in Plattsmith, Nebraska, which is a suburb, basically, of Omaha. Well, guess what? It's moved a little closer to us, and a new church has, has become part of the Breen Fellowship in Iowa. So, hey, we're one step closer to being connected with the dots along the way. So that's that's kind of exciting. And is it Monroe? Is that the name of the city? The one that's going is Astana. Astana? Yeah, so that's that's exciting. That's exciting, and and uh, we may become our own district. Now, whether it's going to become the Hawkeye district or the Gopher district, we don't know, but, you know, we'll work that out. But let me ask you, kind of changing the subject, what's something that you think is really good, so good that you have to share it with other people? I mean, it's just something like, Man, you, you've got to see this. You've got to hear this. You've got to experience this. I mean, you, you, I mean, you just want to tell others about it. In, in my own life, um, and I would say you're almost evangelical about it. And, and you, know, you want to tell others about it. In my own life, there are, are multiple things, but I'll share a couple with you. Number one, that you, something you can't experience until you go to my hometown of Oakland. There are many places you ought not go in Oakland. But there's a place called Fenton's. If you like ice cream and you like old-fashioned ice cream sundaes, there is no place better, I dare say, on earth. It's like flapdoodles on steroids. And it has amazing ice cream, and it's kind of an old fashioned uh, ice cream place. My kids love going there when we're in Oakland. Uh, so if you ever get to Oakland, you want to go to Piedmont Avenue and go to Fenton's to experience that food. Skip a meal because their portions are large, huge, and uh, you'll pay Oakland prices too, but it's part of the experience. Another thing that I'm evangelistic about or want to share with people, and I know I'm not alone in this room, is a series, a television series called The Chosen. And if you've seen it, it it's so good. It's a, it's a series, it's actually, this, it, it's supposed to be eight seasons, I believe, but this year's season has eight episodes. And it's really about the life of Jesus and how his disciples, his followers experience him. And you can get it for free. Just go online and on YouTube, tap in The Chosen. And um, there's a whole bunch of ways to watch it. You can actually subscribe to the whole thing. But it is so good. And you see how Jesus meets each one of the disciples, and it is just beautiful. So if there's something I want to be evangelistic about, it's that, that show, The Chosen. But why are we excited about these things? 
Because we experience something in them that, that brings us to life, right? Or that, that just sounds so good. That tastes so good. It's exhilarating. There's beauty in this. It causes me to see things in a whole different way. A whole new light. A whole new hope. And I'm experiencing life in them. And needless to say, we who are followers of Jesus Christ, we are evangelicals. Maybe not in the way our world terms us, you know, being conservative and supporting a conservative agenda, although that might be true for some of us. But no, our hope is rather in the good news of what God has done. It comes from that old, or that gospel word, or that word from the old English called gospel, which breaks down to God spell, God meaning good, spell meaning message. But again, it's about what God has done to change us, to reach out and change our status before Him. From condemned to children, to change our lives, to change our very nature, to change our eternal destiny. And it's good. We've experienced the good news. And we've been trusted with the good news. And we've been shaped by that. And here's the thing I want you to know. Good news is what we want for other people. Good news is what we want for other people. So speaking of good things, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. And I think this is one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament about what God has done and what He has given us. So if you open up your Bibles, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. And let me just read it to you. And then we're going to come back and break it down. But here's where it starts in verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. But we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. And if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this... Is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. 
We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dig deeper into this, this good word. So Lord Jesus, again, who you are is amazing. God in flesh who came and dwelt among us, lived this life, offered yourself up willingly, rose from the dead. And you have graciously allowed us to hear this good news and to respond to it, to make us your children, make us your people. And now you've entrusted us with this good message. So Lord, my prayer, my prayer is that you would help us to see the good news once again. To grasp it, the joy and all the privilege of it. And Lord, that you would turn us around and make us faithful ambassadors of your good message. So, Lord, I pray that you'll use my words today, edit out what it's not of you, and help us to bring forward um, the good purpose that you've intended for us in yourself, Lord Jesus. Father, do your work among us, we pray. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if there's one major message from this passage, it's this. Gospel people want other people to experience the gospel because they've experienced the gospel. That's a handful, but gospel people want others to experience the gospel because they've experienced the gospel. And the rest of what I have to share is just the, the details of how that breaks down here in this passage. So let's start again at verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. So the first thing we start with is what I call a concern that compels. A concern that compels. That is knowing what it is to fear God. Now when we're talking about the good news, that, that seems like a downer. To fear God? Come on, pastor. Doesn't perfect love cast out fear? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And is God just this bully living to give people a beat down? No, he's not. But he is the creator of all. He is the only source of justice and righteousness in our, our creation. And he, in his, because of his very nature, he must punish sin and wrongdoing. And unfortunately, that starts with our transgression and our rebellion against him. And the penalty is stiff. The penalty is death. For the wages of sin is death, as Romans 6.23 says. And this is not for just the bad people. It's for everyone, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when people try and just relegate fear of God to respect, I think that really falls short. No, there is a fear. I have to account for my life before a holy God. 
And what am I going to do about that? Especially when I fall short and I don't have the resources within myself. I don't have the answer. What am I going to do about that? You know, some will say, okay, you know, this is such a downer. This is such, you know, hellfire and brimstone preaching. You're trying to scare the masses. I want to tell you this. Jesus, who we equate with God's love, spoke more about hell and damnation more than any other person in the Scriptures. But that's why He came. That's why He came. And if bringing this up causes someone to get their, it's causes them to get their attention, to ask the question, what am I going to do when I have to stand before my Creator on my own? What has God done that I can escape this? Because I don't have it. I don't have the resources. And again, I know I'm preaching to the choir for most of us, but this is why Jesus came, compelled by love. John 3, 16, through 18, familiar passage. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And so, that's why we try to persuade others. That's why we try to persuade others. We who put our faith in Jesus. Because we know what it is to fear God's judgment. To face eternal condemnation because of our sin. But we also know what it is to have that the fear of that judgment removed. Or, as the hymn says, to have that fear relieved. Maybe you know the story about John Newton, the man who wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader. He captured human beings and sold them into slavery. And he lived a reprobate life. Partying, getting drunk, sexual immorality. And he knew the gospel. He knew the truth of it. And during some of those voyages across the Atlantic, he experienced, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. What if I face the living God today and I haven't turned my heart over to Christ? What happens? And finally he did. He finally did surrender. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. And it changed his life. And by the way, John Newton had a profound impact on William Wilberforce who God used to abolish slavery in Great Britain. But here's the thing, right? We get to take the good news that you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live trembling in the uncertainty of what happens because God has made a way through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is amazing. That is good news. That God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him doesn't have to perish, but have everlasting life. 
I want to say this. <laughs> you know, all of us are, are, are on a journey as, in our faith as far as following Christ. And maybe you initially put your faith in Christ just because you said, I, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to experience eternal judgment. And you know what? <laughs> that might not sustain you, but that's okay. That's a good starting place. Because it's, it's what God has provided. And as you grow in Christ, the love of God will compel you. And you will know that perfect love casts out fear. You need no longer need to fear that. And you're drawn more to Christ, not because of fear, but because of love. Well, that's a growing process. But here's the truth. As gospel people, there is a transparency that testifies as well. Pick it up in the second half of verse 11. What we are is plain to God. And what, excuse me, is plain to God. And I hope is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. We are out, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. This letter was not written in a vacuum. It was written to the church in Corinth, a city where there were many religious beliefs about who God was or who the gods were and how to have a relationship, how to appease the gods. And for the most part, most of those, of those faiths, pagan or what have you, were based on what I do. What I can do to please the gods, whether it's acts of devotion or sacrifice or what have you, but what I can do to get to the gods, if you will. But let me say this. This is what's different about the gospel. There is a humility in the gospel because there's nothing I can do to, to make things right between me and God. Save for put my faith in what God has done to reconcile me to him. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, a very familiar verse to many of us. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. So no one can boast. There's a humility. I'm not holding up my resume about how godly I am, how devout I am. How disciplined I am. I'm just saying, all I have is Jesus. It's all I have. That's one of the songs we sing around here. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And hallelujah is right. Praise the Lord. Because all of my efforts, no matter how well-intentioned, fall short. And so this, this is how Paul explains this. What we are is plain to God. There's no fooling God about where your faith is at. There's no fooling God about where your security is at. You're either in Christ or you're not. And what we are, and I hope, is also plain to your conscience. Paul's saying to his, his, his audience, I hope it's plain that our faith is in Christ. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer 
those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. There's no self-promotion here. No. This is an opportunity to give you an answer to engage those who are saying, look at my resume. Look at how religious I am. Look at how well I keep the law for those who were the Judaizers. He's saying, all that falls short. Our faith is in Christ and what He's done. And the change really is in the heart. From the inside out. You see, there is a humility in the gospel and a transparency. He says, you know what? I don't have it all together. (laughs) I love Jesus, but I still yell at my kids. I love Jesus. I still have fights with my wife. But it's not based upon my ability to get everything right. It's based on what Christ has done. And He is working from the inside out. You know, sometimes people who are not Christians, they might appear more devout or more moral than people who claim to be followers of Christ. But the truth of the matter is their motive is they're hoping to have a resume before God to say, was I good enough? Did I make the cut? And what a terrifying thing because they don't know. They don't know. They're never sure. Gospel people don't have to wonder about that. You don't have to wonder about that because it's all about what Christ has done and what he said. And he goes on to say, and if we are out of our minds, as some say, it is for God. You know, sometimes when we put forth Jesus, it's like, man, that guy, he's obsessed with Jesus. All he talks about is Jesus. Jesus this, Jesus that. He's not even using him as a swear word. He's, you know, he's, he's just focused on Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because that's my only hope. And that's what I have to stand before God. And I don't care if people call me a Jesus freak, if you will. Because that's where my hope is. On the other hand, he says, and if we're in our right minds, it's, it's for you. It's for you. Because there is a logical, rational, historical reasons to put our faith in Jesus. In fact, I think it's the best worldview out there. Because of what has God has done. We're in our right mind when we talk about Jesus. It's not just this, you know, ethereal faith out there. No. Jesus came, lived, died, and rose from the dead. And there's evidence. And it's changed the whole world. I'm not out of my mind. There's good reasons to believe in Jesus. And so this leads us again into what I call a love that launches. Look at the first half of verse 14. For Christ's love compels us Because we are convinced that one died for all. The love of Christ that is more than 2,000 years old. Still too marvelous, still too wonderful for us to fully comprehend. 
that Jesus, who was fully God, would leave glory, put on flesh, live this life, spend nine months in his mother's womb, be squeezed out through her birth canal, live this life with all of its limitations, all of its troubles. He, he went through puberty. He, I don't know if he, he probably had acne. He lived this life, all of its limitations, lived an obscure existence, at least in human reckoning. He dies a painful, humiliating, unjust death. But he does it to take our punishment. And he did so to reconcile us to God. Even when we didn't get it, even when we're shaking our fist at him. As Romans 5, 8 says, even God demonstrates his own love for us, and even that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still his enemies even. So there's an objective side to Christ's love. That is his love for us. That's what made him come. That's what made him come for us. That objective love starts to affect us. It works in us to say, you know, Jesus' love is, is what this person needs to hear. They need to respond to the good news. It gives us compassion to pursue even people who are unkind to us, who don't like us, or maybe we don't even like in our just earthly nature. It gives us love for them. But there's also a subjective side to Christ's love, our love for Him, for what He has done in His selfless sacrifice. Because we want to please Him, even though we can't pay Him back. And we want to tell others about this good Savior. Let me tell you about my Jesus. For all that He is. And all that He wants to do in your heart. I wish you knew Him like I know Him. I wish you would have the peace in this COVID-19 time that I have. Because even if I die... I'm His. But He's so gracious in meeting me along the way. He's not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake me. He's with me. What an amazing thing. I want to ask you a question. When's the last time you were just so overwhelmed by Christ's love that you just had to share it with somebody? I, I don't know what you think, but I was reading my, in the Bible this morning about this amazing aspect of God's love. And I just got to tell you about it. And maybe if you haven't, we need to let ourselves get a little more carried away with the love of Christ. Because ultimately this leads to a new perspective that gives us new purpose. Second half of verse 14. Because we are convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died. Because he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. You know one of the great challenges of our human existence is that of our selfishness. We naturally, in our flesh, want to live for ourselves. 
We want to put our interests over the interests of others. And our Western society kind of reinforces that. Focus on individuality, self-esteem, comparison, and competition. We've made self-interest a virtue. We've made ourselves the center of the universe and we live for ourselves. And I don't mean to pick on the, the younger generation, but I, th I think it's interesting that the selfie or the Snapchat selfie is such a thing. We, we need to keep ourselves out there so somebody knows I'm significant, somebody knows that I exist. I know folks are doing streaks and things of that nature, and I'm not here to judge that. But I am here to ask, well, why are you doing that? Does it make you more important to get that out there? I mean, we could say the same thing about Facebook sometimes, too. Are we getting our significance from those things? But again, the focus is on self. And folks, that is the most miserable place to be in the world. I will tell you, and I think we've all known, we all know this, when our focus is on ourself, we are the most miserable of creatures. Because we look at the world around us and how it's disappointing us and not meeting us. Not meeting our needs. But herein lies the change. When we see the beauty of Christ and His selfless sacrifice, we realize the life-giving nature of that sacrifice and we realize the power of His resurrection, the life-giving power and the life and joy that He gives us and not living for ourselves but living for Him. Living for His good news kingdom. It gives us something more lasting instead of the emptiness of our own kingdoms. You know, one of our, our brothers just was sharing with me that some of his co-workers who are, are quite well off financially are feeling like their castles are crumbling because they're not holding up in this COVID, this COVID storm. The things that they had put their, their significance in, their life in, their, their significance in, they can't get to them. They can't use them. And it's sinking sand. We have something so much more significant to live for. And we get to say, let me tell you there's a life greater to live for than, than this world. Than the things of this world. Because it can be stolen. It can be taken away. It can crumble. It can decay. Including your health. But let me show you what's worth living for. See, when I'm living for myself, I view people's what's in it for me. What can Kathy do for me? What can Maddie do for me? Why aren't they meeting my needs? Can't they see? If they were more thoughtful, they would, and that makes me miserable, right? Rather than saying, how can I pour into Maddie? How can I pour into Kathy? How can I help them see the beauty of Christ and living for Him? totally changes your perspective to enter into the joy of following Jesus and knowing Him. That's what I want for myself. That's what I want for others. Because then comes a new name that brings a new nature. Verse 17. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Now, Christ is not technically a name. It's a title denoting that Jesus is God's Messiah. It's His anointed one. And He not only brings salvation to those who believe in Him, but spiritual transformation. To be in Christ is to be born again. To be spiritually reborn, as John 3.3 talks about. And that doesn't necessarily eradicate all of our sinful tendencies. We wrestle with that. But the Spirit comes to dwell within us and it gives us a sensitivity and power to say no to that sin rather than to be a slave to it. And it's new again because it didn't come from me. It came from God. What God comes and does within me. You know, we talk about having Jesus in our heart, about Him coming into our hearts. And that's what happens, is that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus comes to dwell in us by faith. And that, frankly, is also part of the good news. Not only that I'm saved, but God comes to dwell within me and to do in me what I cannot do myself. Gives me power I don't have within myself. Things that my flesh doesn't have the strength to do. It's what the Apostle Paul was trying to say in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, this earthly life, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So to be in Christ, to have that new name as Christian gives you a new identity. It gives you a new nature. It gives you a new purpose. It gives you a new perspective and His power. And all ultimately for this. For a ministry done to us, now given to us. Let me say that again. For a ministry done to us, now given to us. Verses 18 through 20. This all is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Ministry is to serve. And think about this. In the gospel, God has served us. He has served us by reconciling us to himself through Jesus. And then he graciously delays his judgment. He doesn't bring it right away. It said again here in verse 19, not counting people's sins against them. And then even more graciously, he turns around 
And then he gives us, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now here's something we don't see in our English translations, but it's in the Greek. He gave us the ministry of the reconciliation. There's a um, definite article in front of reconciliation. He's given us the ministry of the reconciliation. It's not just that we're all going to make peace amongst one another, although that's part of it. But, but we're going to be reconciled to God. That's, that's the ministry that he's given us. And he gives us the privilege to be a part of his redemptive process of salvation, having an impact on another image bearer, someone else who is, in, who is made in the image of God. And so it goes on in verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. You know, God can do anything any way he wants to. But he has said, you know what? I have redeemed you because I want you to be forever mine, but I also have given you this ministry of reconciliation that you can take this good news to others. You've been good news, so good news somebody else. Bring it to somebody else because that's what I have for you. And I don't know how you feel about that, Maybe you feel nervous about it. Maybe you feel excited. But here's, here's something I want to encourage you about. In Romans 16, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. It's the power of God, not the power of Nathan, not the power of Jim Cluth. It is the power of God for the for the salvation of everyone who believes. When you share the gospel, you give God a chance to, to share and show his power in the heart of, of somebody. And yes, they may not respond. They may reject you. But the change is not that I've done such a great job of presenting the material. It's the power of God as he draws men and women to himself. So the pressure is off you. You don't have to close the deal. It's the power of God. And I, and I will say, as far as methods are concerned, probably standing on a street corner and proclaiming that is not so effective. Although it, if God is calling you to do that, do it. Do it in obedience. I don't, I, I don't think so. But again, God has made us his ambassadors to have a relationship with people. Let me tell you about how Jesus is. Maybe he's not who you think he is. Tell me about who you think he is because you may have it wrong. How he's revealed himself. But again, our message is we implore you on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is the means by which you can be reconciled to God. You can become his child. You don't have to experience his judgment. And there's so many more benefits to it. I just don't have time to preach about it. And maybe somebody is in this room and they don't like the fact that Christians say, well, it's the only way to be reconciled to God. 
And if that's you, here's just some things I want you to consider. First of all, when we say it, it's not because we've culturally, I guess, conditioned ourselves to say it. There's not an ego in this. Again, because there's humility in the gospel. Look, I am lost without Jesus. And all we're saying is what Jesus has said about himself. Where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. No woman comes to the Father except through me. We are repeating what he says. If we're going to be consistent, logically, with what Jesus says about everything, we can't exclude that. So we're repeating what Jesus says. Number two, the scriptures affirm there is a real spiritual enemy, a devil, Satan. And you can, you can say, oh, that's, that's cute. Some little man walking around with horns and a pitchfork and a pointed tail. <laughs> I don't know about that. But I do know there's a real spiritual enemy who hates God, who hates those made in his image. That's all of us. That's all of us. And if he's trying to wreak havoc in God's kingdom, how is he going to do it? Sometimes it's just to rebel against the Creator, but here's the other, other strategy. I'll deceive them. I'll give them a counterfeit from the real thing. And therefore, I won't, they won't be connected with the real thing. Because he's the only way. And last of all, I want you to consider this. Sometimes people say, you know, the claim of exclusivity of Jesus is arrogant. I want you to think of things from God's perspective. God who creates. God who is the one who is offended. God who sends his son, who makes a way. He sends his only son to die, to make a way. And you go, mm, I don't think so. I think I'll find my own way. Is that not arrogant? Is that not arrogant? I will tell you, I've said this before many times, I would not give up any of my children for this sinful world. But God does. God does. And for us to say, eh, to reject that, that is arrogance. Now, you can, we can have an argument whether that's true or whether that's false. But if that's what God has done, you can't say it's arrogant. He's given his most precious relationship for us. And as an ambassador of Christ, of the gospel, I do want to say to you, be reconciled to God. If you're not ready to make that decision, at least I would say don't dismiss this out of hand. Really pursue who Christ was and his claims. Because this is too important of a decision. And hell is too hot and eternity is too long. So consider this. And if you want to talk afterward, I'd love to talk with you. Masked or unmasked, I don't care. And the last thing is what I call an extraordinary exchange. Verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
And these are familiar words. I read them. I usually repeat them at the end of communion every time because I'm still amazed by them. The profound reality that took place on the cross as the sinless Son of God willingly went there to take upon himself our judgment. That's how God's anger against injustice is satisfied. And so what happens is he becomes the target of God's anger, of God's judgment for us. He is our substitute. He takes it upon himself. And in turn, we who are guilty, we who deserve God's punishment, we who put our faith in Christ, not only receive what we, not only don't receive what we deserve, but we get what we don't deserve. That is God's righteousness. We are justified before a holy God. And that is amazing grace. So we've come full circle in this passage, right? We know what it is to fear the Lord, His coming judgment, His wrath. But the resolution is this. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's good news. And again, I want to encourage you to preach this message to yourself, first of all. Make yourself happy and joyful in that message. And then you can take it and be an ambassador of this good news. It's something we have the privilege to do. It's something we should want for others. We are gospel people. We've experienced the gospel. Now God has given us the privilege to take that gospel to a world that desperately needs it. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful for these words. I'm so grateful for your goodness. I am so grateful for your place in my life. And Lord, if there's somebody in this room today who has not experienced putting their faith in you, who has not been reborn, Lord, would you weigh on their heart with your Holy Spirit? And my friend, if that's you, if that's you, brother or sister, I, I, I urge you to be reconciled to God, to say now, Lord, I have sinned and rebelled against you. Forgive me. Lord Jesus, I know you died on the cross in my place. I know you rose from the dead to give life that I don't have in myself. So come into my heart. Make me yours. Save me from your just punishment. And make me a new creation in you. If that's the desire of your heart, the Lord will respond. So Lord Jesus, would you come and take residence in our hearts today. That the joy of the Lord, that the joy of your good news, your gospel, would transform us and change us.
And that the dwelling of your presence, Lord Jesus, would give us power, would give us great joy to be your ambassadors in a world that so desperately needs this good word, this gospel. So Lord, we are your people. Use us for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand?